0: Welcome to the Policy and Plainer English podcast. I'm your host, Helen Laban.
1: Hello, my name is Georgia Meharis. I'm the Vice President of Policy and Strategy at Bi-State Primary Care Association.
0: So for those of you who listened to our previous seasons, you'll remember that we like to finish each season in a summary conversation with Georgia, going over some of the key points and themes that we've touched on on the previous episodes. We are going to start first off with some points about Federally Qualified Health Centers or FQHCs. So we featured a lot of different food projects involving different types of healthcare practices. But this season was also supported by a grant focused on building collaboration between food organizations and FQHCs in Vermont. An FQHC is a particular type of primary care practice. And in the lore of the FQHC, we like to talk about how the first community health center in this model went so far as to include a farm. And that was back in the 60s. Georgia, can you speak a bit more about how food access fits into the work FQHCs do today? Happy to. Thank you, Helen. The
1: FQHCs have a responsibility within their communities to provide the services that are defined by their community-led boards. And these include services that go beyond the four walls of the health center and really reach into the community and into the families to support everything that they need. It could be providing transportation from to and from appointments. It could be working on housing related issues. It could be helping to find a job. And of course, it would include ensuring that there is sufficient food for the household, either through accessing SNAP or other benefits, or it can include
0: uh, training about diet to really improve someone's health and well being. And I think it's really important to remember that. In the mission of the FQHC, we really understand food access, along with other things that you mentioned, as being an important component of what gives people the ability to have a healthy life, right? It's not just about treating a disease once it's happened, but it's about prevention. It's about being able to access good health. And that's a really holistic perspective on the role of healthcare that I think a lot of different practices embody, but it's something that's been part of FQHC since their very beginning. That's exactly right, Helen. And I would offer as a
1: couple of examples, you know, health centers that have community gardens on the site of the health center. So not quite a full farm, as you referenced earlier, but, you know, growing tomatoes, for example, and then distributing those tomatoes to the community, to different patient classes, then teaching the patients how to make tomato sauce or otherwise preserve the food over the winter. It really goes into a a strong connection between making sure that the individuals they're caring for in their health center know what healthy food exists and how to access it.
0: And another thing that you talked about, which was certainly a theme of every episode of the season, are the community partnerships that go along with that. The FQHCs may not be having the farms in their region right now. They might be partnering with farms in the region and and partnering with other community organizations. So we've talked a lot kind of generally about how those community partnerships emerge throughout this season. I do think it's important just to check in on very specifically FQHCs do have regulations, rules, and expectations around those community partnerships, Um, so not to dismiss the fact that they simply want to partner with, with community organizations and others in their region, but there are also these specific requirements that go with their status as federally qualified. Take us just quickly through how that fits into the regulatory design of an FQHC. Sure so if you think about an FQHC
1: sitting within each community and trying to meet the needs of a community through either identifying those needs with a community health needs assessment and I think there's an earlier podcast on that topic or in ensuring that their board brings ideas from the community forward, surveying their patients to identify what their patients need or what is missing in their community they come up with you know a list of things that would benefit the community. And frequently, as you said, it is optimal for the health center to work with partners to deliver kind of the maximum benefit to their community and to really make sure that they are tapping into resources that already exist and being complementary, not duplicative. It truly is about meeting the needs of the community and stretching, not just the health center resources, but the resources of all of their community partners as far as they can go to benefit that community.
0: Now at the health center, one thing that we have talked about are specific positions that are also designed to help with these connections. So we did an episode looking at one of those, which is care coordinators, and they help patients access tools to help them be healthy in that holistic way that we were talking about before. Another position we haven't talked about yet is the community health worker that sometimes plays a care coordinator role, but not always. It's a distinct type of position at a healthcare practice. Georgia, could you give us a quick summary of who community health workers are? Yes. The way I think about
1: community health workers is the individual who serves as a community health worker is from the community, part of the community, embedded in the community. And that's really where their connections are, where their hearts and minds are. And while they might work at a health center, the link to that community is is really tight and really important. And frankly, the part that has the most value because they are trusted within their community so that if they were to convey information back out to the community from the health center, their message would be received differently than say a generalized message that is you know blanketing everyone in the state um, that doesn't quite have those same links and connections to the community. My experience with community health workers has been they're really engaging, energetic, and eager to help in their community at that really grassroots level. And so, you know, we've heard a lot more conversation during COVID-19 around community health workers, in part because of a recognition that While it's good to have information come, you know, on a statewide level or to come from different social media or traditional media, having someone who is close to you who understands your community explain things to you or provide you information is really critical in ensuring that the message gets out to everyone where it truly needs to go. One of the things that we have also seen is that there's an opportunity for community health workers to have a specific role around social determinants of health, like food, and really making sure that they are providing information around having the right types of food. So a a story that I have from a health center in Boston is that there was a challenge with diabetic patients, and the issue was that the patients were from a a specific culture where carbs were very, very important. And so it was really important for those patients to have someone teaching them around what to do food-wise for their diabetes and their health related to that, that acknowledged and honored their culture and showed them things that were perhaps better alternatives in a culturally appropriate way for them. And so these community health workers can do that in a very honest and collaborative way because of where they come from and how they are associated within the community.
0: So I'd like to take a step back and look kind of overall about how these community partnerships are working with healthcare at FQHS, but also other kinds of healthcare practices to do that integration of the food and health. And I kind of separate this work into related buckets in my mind. So there's the input that we talked about, uh, inputting guidance into how healthcare is delivered. Is it responding to community needs? Does it match what, what they're looking for in the community? And then there's also the direct partnerships around outreach, referrals, piloting specific projects. We've certainly profiled that in some of these episodes. But then I think you also have a bucket that's a bit larger, and that would be networks. And I think of networks as multiple community organizations coming together with healthcare practices to continually find opportunities for collaboration. And I know Vermont has really tried to encourage these kinds of networks. And I think that's also where some of us start to get confused because there's a lot of jargon and specific terms that fly around. So we have the community health teams, the community collaboratives, the accountable communities for health, the RISE-VT teams, the Blueprint communities. Can you help us unpack a little what these different groups are and how they all fit together?
1: I will do my best. I think I would start off by saying that part of what the different terms mean, be it an accountable community for health or a community collaborative or, you know, any prosper or whatever name is given is there some differentiation in different regions of Vermont where there's customization to effectively these networks that you described, where you have coming together the health center, the hospital, the community mental health designated agency, the local housing entity, the local food entity, and on and on, where they're they're coming together as a group to address cross-cutting issues in their communities. You know, everyone's touching the same individual, but in a slightly different way, right? So how do you make sure that the individual doesn't fall through any cracks when you're trying to make sure as a community that the individual gets the supports that they need? So if you just take community health teams, those are run by the Blueprint for Health, which is a state program, and they have specific goals that are more healthcare-oriented, so really more traditionally, you know, meet those quality scores and engage in PDSA quality improvement cycles. On the other end, to get to, say, a RISE Vermont team is really focused on the community and what the community at large can do to support the overall health of the community. Are there things that the business can do? Are there different road Patterns and designs you can do? Should you create a bike path? You know, are there different ways that there could be community events that are supporting better health across the spectrum? And then we have everything in between. So while I'd love to say it's a simple definition for every single entity and organization, there has been a really great opportunity for each community itself to define. What they're doing in the constellation of activities to support their community and pulling in folks from the Department of Health, folks from the healthcare providers, folks from housing, folks from food to really bring a package together that is addressing what that community needs at that time, because each community has slightly different needs and slightly different priorities.
0: Yeah, not to add complication to this, but what we're describing here is coming from the healthcare side. The food world has its own structures and networks that also has the overlap, right? So there's Hunger Councils, there's the Farm to Plate Network, which has a Food and Health Committee. There's Healthcare Without Harm, which is a really interesting group. It reaches beyond Vermont, but it also has a Vermont chapter. The Healthy Food and Healthcare Group, Food to Institution New England, that's another one. I'm sure I am missing some. And Looking at the overlap between food access and healthcare, I think one distinguishing attribute in Vermont is that a lot of the food and healthcare networks have begun with hospitals. And that makes sense, right? Because there's a natural connection. The hospitals have food service, which makes an easy fit for a group like, for example, Farm to Plate, which has a goal of increasing sales of Vermont food. So you can kind of put hospitals and schools together as places with cafeterias that also care about having a healthy menu. And that's a really easy fit for the food networks. And it's a pretty strong movement in Vermont as well. Now, in this podcast season, we've tried to highlight different types of collaborations that get out into different aspects of the healthcare system, and in particular, the primary care system. So, where healthcare providers are serving as a connection for food access, but also where they're making a direct clinical connection. So, they're using food to treat or prevent disease. And that's slightly different from the conversation you might have around you know how does a hospital source local food and be sure that there's healthy food on the menu for its patients for example and they're two distinct but very connected conversations and and we've really been highlighting the the former uh, partially just because we we are a network that is focused on those primary care providers
1: i completely agree helen you know it's it's becoming more and more clear i would say to to me and to others that food is a critical part in treating and preventing disease. It seems at times that we're a bit spoiled in Vermont with so much fresh food available to us, you know, farmers markets year round, growing food that seems impossible in our winters, but grow in our winters that are fresh and local, that can really help tempt someone into trying something new. So I think we're at a time right now where we have this opportunity to expand upon the good work that you referenced that our hospitals are doing with their food service, tapping into what's locally available and really making those connections clinically and extend that into primary care practices like those that health centers have and beyond. So really getting out of um, taking the lessons learned and the good work, extending it as far as we can and really growing and expanding these networks that have been started in Vermont and tapping into new opportunities in the future.
0: One point that we do need to acknowledge is that there's a lot of great movement right now. There's great food. There's general awareness in Vermont that food is a critical part of health that I'm not sure is something we can always take for granted. We should probably acknowledge that for groups that haven't worked with healthcare practices in the past, As soon as you start to dip your toes into the clinical side of things, that's a whole new world of regulation out there, right? For one thing, you you get into HIPAA-protected information and a data management structure that goes with that. So when you begin to turn the corner and build on the general food access work that we've all been part of and begin to look for those direct clinical applications, treatment of disease, linking it to a healthcare practice... It really is a leveling up. I wonder if you could give us a little insight into that world, perhaps. Sure. Uh,
1: I'm laughing a little bit because to me, as someone who's decided early on professionally to focus on healthcare law and regulations, it seems completely normal that this is the world that uh, we live in on the healthcare side, which is, as you said, heavy on regulation, and a lot of emphasis on protecting the data and information that is gathered by healthcare providers with good reason. Unfortunately, there are individuals in the world who would use health information in a way that is really destructive for an individual, either personally, professionally, And it can really be devastating for an individual who's not ready to have that information shared publicly, or it can lead to different stigma or other issues. In good news, though, you know, we do have, I would say, a strong HIPAA regulatory structure in place that lays out the rules of the road pretty well. And once you've learned the rules of the road, you can comply with them um, and make sure that you're taking care of the data in a way that is really appropriate for the data that are there. You're getting the appropriate consent from the patients, and you're otherwise using it in a way that it was intended to be used for. I guess we could go down a rabbit hole of so many different types of rules and regulations around data. But to me, what I think is important to understand is while these rules and regulations exist and they exist for good reason, they're not insurmountable. You can really work with them to figure out how to use the data to determine if a given food access program did what you intended. Were the patients better off on the back end? Were things ending up the way they were? Was the investment worthwhile for a patient outcome?
0: Yeah, and to that point of understanding whether the program had an impact that it was intended to, you know, this is always a cost-benefit conversation, right? There is certainly... A critical and I would say a foundational role to play in food access programs that are open to everyone in the community. No questions asked. Not even a question asked if you're part of the community. Anyone who walks through the door gets lots of uh, good, healthy food and support with finding that food. And you know, when we ask the question, did that program accomplish what it intended to accomplish? You measure that basically on how the food moves. And whether people felt good about participating, right? It's a question I think that advocates and groups should be asking themselves of what is the benefit of moving from that kind of approach to something that can be more targeted where you do have to identify someone by name and therefore bring in a lot of these other compliance questions and evaluation questions. But the upside of doing that is you can then tailor to be able to treat disease to be able to prevent disease. I know that we certainly do hear from providers how really heartbreaking it is to see someone who you know that they would be so much healthier that they could live longer and live a higher quality life if only they could change their diet but they can't because as a particular tailored diet, if only they had access to that sort of food easily available in quantity, their lives could be so much better and yet there is not a mechanism to provide them with that food. Uh, and we can get to a point where we have that mechanism, but it sure does take a lot of work and a pretty drastic not change but evolution from where we are right now to be able to accommodate that.
1: You know, as I think about it, I I feel a little bit as where we are going next in this evolution that you referenced, Helen, is not an either or, right? We we do have still a very critical need to ensure that anyone who walks in can get that that bag of food and no questions asked because that's where that individual is at that point in their life and asking questions would be stifling or counter to ensuring that they actually had food just to, to exist. And we also have individuals that are in a place where if there was a more highly customized fine-tuned diet, they could avoid having to become insulin dependent, or they could be in a position where all of a sudden they're not in chronic pain because they've realized that they have a, they're celiac, which they didn't know. And that gluten was actually making it worse every day, you know, or on and on and on with the examples. So I think to me, it's just acknowledging that there is this intentional move to try and support this level of providing food for those individuals for whom that is what makes the most sense while maintaining the resources for those who need them in the other way.
0: Well, I think that also gets into a point that we haven't, we've talked about a little bit in the season, but haven't really done a deep dive on, which is the ongoing question of which components of this are on the back of healthcare, right? We can make an argument that pretty much any societal goal ties back to health. But that doesn't mean that the healthcare system should be paying for everything just because you can make that argument. Healthcare is sufficiently expensive as it is that probably adding every function of government onto it is going to both be a cost proposition we don't like, and also one could argue, not really in healthcare's area of expertise either. So, at some point, this gets back to the community networks and the community partnerships. You know, you need to have a sharing of responsibility. And just because something traces back to health doesn't mean that. Healthcare is going to be the sector that solves that particular issue. It more means that there's a partnership opportunity there.
1: I could agree more, Helen. I think being able to leverage partners that have been doing good work and really be complementary is where the focus should be. No one should be reinventing anything. Um, you know, I think the lessons we've seen in other states and other countries is that there's A lot of opportunity in both understanding what your community partners can and can't do, and in then bringing those forces together into a more powerful, holistic uh, unit to support your community.
0: And that point about the different skills and bringing them together, I think is a great way to tie in sort of the last thing I want to talk to you about with these networks is that one of our bi-state partners made a good point the other day about how she thinks about these networks and how they're built in and function, and that there are groups that have the primary goal of information sharing. And also, there are groups that have the primary goal of coming together to build projects and create new programs. And there's sometimes overlap, but not always overlap, and both are very valuable. And BiState has spent the last year in a really structured form of that information sharing kind of network. And we had a HRSA grant on strategic planning for food and health networks that helped support that. But the angle was to be able to go beyond the information sharing and start to support new projects in this field. Do you have any news you'd like to share about that particular topic of evolving networks that could get into implementation of projects?
1: Uh, I do. Thank you, Helen. Um, we are very excited at Bi-State, because we have a new grant that will help fund pilot projects just like you described. We're going to be focusing on three types of pilot projects, food prescriptions, medically tailored meals, and a social grocery store. And the idea behind this grant is that we are both supporting the pilot programs and also sharing lessons learned with other organizations. This is particularly important right now um, because we're coming out of COVID-19 and and we really want to make sure that we are addressing the broader risk factors and food insecurity, which has been identified as such a serious issue for Vermonters throughout this
0: pandemic. And we should be clear, those pilot projects were pre-selected back last year when we wrote this grant. So we're not looking for new ideas for pilot projects. We've got three that will be funded, but we are intending to build on those and continue to uh, find support for other programs in addition to the lessons learned. So we we look forward to being able to start that work. And it is a four-year grant, so we'll be doing this for a little while yet. So that being said, it's always a good idea to end a conversation on receiving a grant. Are there any last thoughts on food and health care before I call it a wrap for this season?
1: Thank you, Helen. I think the only final thought that I would offer is it feels a bit like we're just at the beginning of this conversation and we have a lot of opportunity in front of us. So looking forward to the continued work in the food and health sphere in the coming months and years. Excellent.
0: Thanks to everyone who's listened to this season of Policy in Plainer English. Remember that if you're looking for an archive of episodes with show notes, you can find that at plainerenglish.org or stream through your preferred podcast player. And that's all for this food-focused series on the Policy in Plainer English podcast.